me ask you something. Um, when it is imperative, when it's really, 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 really important for you to get someone to listen to you, you know how a lot of times you talk, nobody listens to you, right? Do you feel like that sometimes? But this is really, really important for someone to listen to you uh, when they might other say, yeah, okay, thanks, right, whatever. You know, parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, wh- how, do you, how do you get their attention? I have found a few ways that, um, to varying de- various degrees and varying degrees, are, have been effective. I have found that, that yelling sometimes can be very, very effective. Uh, I want you to go up in your room right now, not later, and you clean it from top to bottom. Sometimes that really that has, that has worked. It really does. Acting deranged and possessed at times can really bring about a good result. I have also found that uh, sometimes threats are somewhat effective. Uh, you know, I want you to go into your room right now, and I want you to clean it from top to bottom, or you're not borrowing the car tonight when you want to go out with your friends. That's been effective at times. But how do you approach someone uh, whose offenses, whose uh, problems, whose travels have brought them to a truly dangerous place? How do you reach them and get them to listen to you? We're not talking about cleaning a room here. I mean, sometimes we're talking about really, really serious stuff. How do you reach someone who has literally gone off-road and you know that there's a real chance, there's a really, really good chance that this ain't ending well, that it's going to end really, really poorly? How do you gain their ear? When my mother uh, was in her late 30s or early 40s, she suffered from pretty significant insomnia. I think we, I know we have some people here. Uh, in fact, you're already starting to catch up right now. I can see some people starting, starting to uh, catch up from last night. Um, but it's, you know what? Insomnia really is not a, it's kind of, it's not really funny at all. It's, you, when you have insomnia, you can't sleep during the night. You kind of sleepwalk through the day, don't you? And anybody who's had children, anybody, you know, you go through periods where maybe it's, it's not something, you don't know why you can't sleep, but you just, you just don't and are, are not allowed to. And it's very, very difficult to go through the day. Well, anyway, my, my mother uh, had some real serious insomnia, and she went to the doctor, and the doctor told her something what she thought was just almost, she was aghast at it. Uh, the doctor, and this is many, many years ago, the doctor told her to uh, drink a few ounces of red wine before she goes to bed at night, that he had found that this uh, has the amazing capacity of, capacity of you know, settling people down and getting them to sleep. Well, now, w- we were raised in a very, very conservative church. And, uh, you know, if, if you drank alcohol at all, uh, you didn't tell anybody about it, okay? It was kind of like, you know, on the sly. In fact, I remember one time going to the supermarket, one of the guys from, from our, uh, our church, I was a little kid, and I saw he had a six-pack. In his, in his basket, and I said, to, I said to him, Mom, I thought he was a Christian. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's kind of like where we were raised. So my mother just really pushed back, really pushed back against that. And, but finally, you know what? Uh, she said, all right, I'm going to do that. So she had a couple of ounces of red wine, and, and guess what? It helped her. It really did. She found that she slept better. But after a while... The couple of ounces didn't work as well, so she had a couple more, and uh, then a couple more after that, and pretty soon she was drinking uh, 
a half a bottle or more at night, mostly, mostly more. And in her young midlife, my mother became an alcoholic. She thought she was being discreet, as everybody does, but we all knew about it. And we all kept quiet for the worst possible reason, because we didn't want to embarrass her, or we were afraid of a, a wrathful response. Well, finally got to the point that our family didn't know what to do. Uh, it was getting really quite bad. Now, I'm her son, and I, by this point, had already gone through seminary, still not saying anything to my mother out of fear. And we went to this family whatever, you know, place, and they said, look, it, uh, uh, you're going to have to uh, have, uh, this is really serious, you're going to have to have an intervention. Do you, do you know what an intervention is? An intervention, it's like a surprise party, only nobody jumps out and says, surprise, they all, it's all your friends come together, they, they stand around, uh, and when you walk through the door, you know, the person is shocked, and you, then you confront them uh, with, with their problem, and usually you take them right to a center for, for help. It was all the rage sometime. I don't even know if they do it now, but it was all the rage. They, you know, I don't hear about it too much anymore. But anyway, uh, this person, this woman is talking to us, and this is what you have to do, and we're looking at each other, and we're going, this, ain't gonna, <laughs> this is never going to work. Are you kidding me? She would not receive this well. So finally, I said to everyone, I, I have to do this. I have to do this. I need to confront her. I need to do what I should have done a really long time ago. And I remember Marion and I were living in West Orange, having recently relocated back to uh, New Jersey from the Midwest. And my mother was over, and I remember really clearly sitting her on that black couch, you know, in our tiny little apartment. And I took a deep breath, and I sat real, real close to her. And I said, Mom, you got to talk. What followed were a lot of tears, a lot of embarrassment, a lot of shame, but it did something. By God's grace, that day was the beginning of a road back to sobriety. My mother showed amazing courage and strength and brokenness, and after a couple of short fits and starts, she was free, and she never took another drink again for the rest of her life. Now, I could have taken the approach with her and said, my, you know, what is wrong with you? What do you think? Every, every, we're all stupid all these years that we don't see what you're doing. Give me a break. We all know what you're doing. Knock this stuff off right now. But the seriousness of the situation, it just, that, you know, that was just unacceptable. I, I, I could have said, hey, you know what? I have a little child in the next room, and I will never let you babysit for my son again unless you get your life straightened out. See, I, I think I could have done that. But the seriousness of the situation, it just didn't, it, it didn't seem to warrant that. Threats, yelling, or even the intervention of family members and friends when everybody stands a yard or two back just in case objects start flying around a room, none of that seemed right. It took me finally realizing the seriousness of the situation and gaining the courage to draw near to her with a heart, frankly, that was filled with part fear, part compassion, because you hate somebody who you love destroy themselves. I mean, you hate that, don't you? 
and, 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 and part grace, actually a lot of grace, to gently and empathetically sit with her before something really, really terrible happened. Well, after expressing genuine thanks to God for the Corinthian church, after expressing his confidence in the fact that God, who called them, was surely going to see them through to the end of life, if you were here last week, and then home safely to heaven, the Apostle Paul begins to address some of the problems that threaten to destroy this fledgling church. But he doesn't use bravado. And he doesn't lean on them using his position as an apostle, founder of the church. He comes to them meekly. And metaphorically, he saddles up right next to them. He takes their hand in his hand. And he puts his arm around them with the other. And he says, guys, we need to talk. How do I know that? Well, in verse 10, it says, I appeal to you. Brothers and sisters, the Greek word that Paul uses there, it's translated, I appeal, in the NIV. Literally, the word means to draw someone close to you, to bring them in physically close. If, if need be, violate their personal space. Get eyeball, eyeball to eyeball with them. See, you, you, you do that when things get really, really serious. When you need to have a true heart-to-heart -heart talk, you don't do it from a distance. You do it up close and personal. When the stakes are sky high and the alternative is unthinkable and a positive response is imperative, that's what you do. I know in my life when people have drawn near to me gently and humbly to bring a word to me that I needed to hear to open my eyes to things that I just couldn't see after the initial defensiveness and excuses, wow, that may be true, but you know, after all that is over, my reaction has almost always been, you know, I think this person cares. I really think that they stepped out on a limb, not to hurt me, but to help me. Now, there are a lot of things that Paul needed to talk to them about. A lot of things that he, as he saw it, threatened to do some heavy-duty damage to them all and to that church. But first, he needed to let them know that he did not come with a rod of discipline, but gently as a genuinely distressed parent to a child who's about to head over the cliff. And as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians, I want you to remember how Paul comes to you, how he comes to us not only to that church, but to us 2,000 years later. And the very manner in which he approached them was the perfect way in which uh, to address the first issue that he thought was most critical at hand. Because the first issue the apostle deals with in this church was about some reports that he had coming to him uh, from uh, a woman by the name of uh, Chloe about relational problems in the church that had cropped up in Corinth. The word that he uses in verse 10 to describe what was happening, schisma, is a word that literally means to tear. Have you ever, you know, everybody's done this at one time. You go lean over, and all of a sudden you hear that, that really hideous sound, something like that. Or, worse yet, you do, you know, one of those things, and the pants split. I've done, you know, I've done all the, in fact, one time I did it just before I got up to preach, the pants thing, and that was, uh, that was an interesting, uh, uh, you know, uh, Anyway, um, so, so that, that's the word that is used. 
It's, 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 it's a fabric that was a whole fabric that now has come apart. And there's an unsightly rent in what once was whole. Um, as we uh, look at this and uh, the passages uh, that Lee led for us uh, this morning, we're going to see the reasons why this, this had happened. Tears were appearing in, in the fabric of the church. There were, there were tears such as sexual immorality. The improper use of spiritual gifts. Oh, they had lots of spiritual gifts. In fact, he praised them. Remember last week for them? But, but they were using them in such a terrible way, not the way that they were supposed to be used, that he had to, he had to address it, tear. Uh, there were lawsuits. Christians were suing Christians, even though they were going to reign one day in the new kingdom. Marriage issues, questions on singleness, their insistence on enjoying their newfound freedom in Christ, even at the expense of everybody else. But before he deals with any of those, he addresses this issue. And this required him to get up real close and real personal. The first thing that he addresses was the terror of disunity and division in the church. It came by, a, by way, as I said, of a woman by the name of Chloe. Now, we know almost nothing about this woman. Some speculate that she uh, lived uh, in Ephesus. You know, Paul was writing to this church in Corinth from Ephesus. And some people have speculated and say, well, this is a woman who was in Ephesus, probably a woman who was well-to-do, who had servants and slaves, and she used to send her servants and slaves to Corinth and Ephesus and back and forth and trading and stuff like that. And on one of those trips, her servants or her slaves, probably her slaves, heard, you know, got like uh, the gossip from the church at Corinth, brought it back, told, the, you know, the mistress, Chloe, and Chloe then told Paul. Well, what was happening what was going on there at that church? What was the flashpoint in Corinth? What was the gossip that Chloe's household spilled on these issues? Well, verse 12 says this. What I mean, he says, talks about, you know, they're, they're split up and the fabric has, has torn. And, you know, I mean, he says, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. It seems that people in that church were lining up behind certain leaders. Not that these leaders had anything to do with trying to line people up behind them. That is absolutely not the case. In fact, Paul later on is aghast that people are lining up behind him. In fact, uh, some people think that they were lining up uh, not only because of their philosophy, but because certain of these people, uh, you know, like uh, Peter may have made a trip there and Paul was there and Apollos was there. Maybe they baptized them. And so, you know, they kind of just naturally said, well, this guy is the guy who baptized me, and now I want it. But, you know, it, it, speculation, we're not exactly sure why, why that all happened. But they were lining up behind certain personalities. Some heralded Paul as their champion. Paul, the apostle of grace. Folks, I got to tell you something. If you've, read, if you've read the New Testament at all, uh, then you know that almost no other man in Scripture held tightly and I mean with both arms, held tightly to grace like his life depended on it. And he knew, you know what? It did. It really did. And he held on with good reason. The scriptures tell us that Paul at one time was not merely an antagonist of Christianity, but a persecutor of Christians. He didn't just make their lives uncomfortable. In many cases, he took a direct hand in ending people's lives. Paul was a murderer. I think sometimes that escapes us. You know, we read Paul and, 
you know, the, the, great, you know, the great apostle. You know, read Acts chapter 8. Read Acts chapter 8, and you know what you'll find the story of? 7 and 8? The story of the first Christian martyr named Stephen. And as they pummeled Stephen with rocks, the scriptures say that the people, you know, because they, they wanted to really, you know, not be encumbered by their coats. They wanted, you know, to really throw it in there, a 90-mile-an-hour 90, 90 fastball. So they took their coats off, and they laid them at, a feet, at the feet of a man named Saul, later to become Paul. So most commentators, most scholars believe that Paul was the one who got the mob together. Can you imagine having that on your conscience when later on things begin to change? That you had a hand, in fact, you orchestrated the death of the first Christian martyr, and then it says that he went breathing threats, murderous threats, from house to house, and he dragged people out, and he put mothers in one prison and fathers in another prison, and the kids were scattered, scattered out. He destroyed families. This is the apostle Paul. Is there any wonder that when his eyes were open and he had a Martin Luther moment, that he held to grace for dear life? Is there any wonder that he did? I have often seen that the greater the sinner, the greater the understanding of grace, and the greater the love for the one who gives that grace. I have, I have seen that. Now, Paul went from thinking that he could only be acceptable to God by running really, really hard and fast on the moral treadmill to trusting what Jesus had already done for him by dying on the cross for his sins. That's what made him acceptable. The light went on. Years later, as I said, Martin Luther had a very similar experience. A, seminal, a, a similar epiphanal moment of light all of a sudden shining in. See, that's what happens when good theology, that's what happens when the doctrine of justification of grace by faith alone breaks in. And that understanding removed him from bondage and it brought him to freedom. No more wondering if he had, you know, if he had done enough. I mean, did I, did I help enough little old ladies across the street? Did I give enough money to the church? You know, am I kind enough to my neighbor? You know, I said, well, you know what? I kind of cursed that guy out and, you know, uh, told the guy who cut me off on 280, you know, we're number one kind of signal I, I gave him. And, you know, now I have to kind of, you know, kind of balance that stuff. How do I know when, you know, when the good, it kind of outweighs the bad? And he was freed from all that. No more wondering if his efforts, you know, covered his past sins and present. By the way, they, they couldn't, they never could, they never did. Just a note there. A former slave owner once wrote this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. John Newton never got over the fact of grace. He never got over the fact that's not a bad doctrine to park yourself on, is it? To be accepted and acceptable, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. Paul was the great champion of Christian freedom over against the bondage of the law. That is great news. But you know what? Our fallen natures uh, take even the best news sometimes <laughs> and makes it into something pretty ugly. You know, I've heard people who said, 
You know, who needs rules? I got Jesus. You know, that's all I need. I got Jesus. I got the Son of God. And now I have seen that sometimes champions of grace, 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 forget that they were saved by that grace, not to be free to sin, but to be freed from sin. They understand the unmerited favor of God, while at the same time, a lot of times they forget that Christ died to make them holy. And that's a big omission. Folks, listen, when you see a grace, grace, grace Christian begin to reflect the world more than they begin to reflect Christ, I have to tell you something. You are looking at someone who has forgotten where grace should lead. Sometimes when the disciples of Paul are running the store uh, and they just latch on to the one thing, grace, 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 holiness has a tendency to get shoved to a back shelf. There are others who said... uh, I follow Apollos. They championed him. In Acts chapter 18, we looked at it last week. uh, Actually, no, before that, uh, a few weeks before that. In Acts chapter 18, it said this. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. This is the story of Paul in Corinth. A native of Alexandria came to Ephesus. He He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scripture. Now, Alexandria, that tells us a lot. Alexandria was the center of intellectual activity in the ancient world. Uh, people who came from Alexandria had a reputation of being deep thinkers, and they prided themselves on being so. You know, you ever meet somebody who's like, you know, they're just, they, they're smart, okay, we get it, you got a lot of letters after your name, but they want you, they, they constantly want to remind you of that. You know, they, they kind of slip in certain authors and things. Have you read that? You know, I had a guy one time, worked there. did you read this book? I go, oh, no, I, I haven't. Oh, <laughs> you know, and, and you're like, they, 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 they really appreciate when they know that they've just, you know, made you look a little dumb next to them. I I guess, you know, we all kind of in some way try to float our boat higher than anybody else. Anyway, so, uh, uh, you know, these people were learned people. They were real thinkers from Alexandria. Uh, They uh, they prided themselves on this. Apollos, by Luke's own words in Acts chapter 18, distinguished himself by his mastery of the scriptures as a learned exegete, as well as a very clear, enthusiastic teacher. To Jewish skeptics, we see him setting forth in that Acts chapter 18 a powerful case from the Bible for Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. This guy was a thinker, Apollos. You know, he, this guy never shot from the hip. He was the kind of guy who had his notes. I mean, you know, if you go into his office, everything's clean. Everything, you know, there's a little stack here of bills, but everything else is beautiful. He's, you open up his, you know, his file cabinets. He's, you know, he's got them all lettered. Not every, everything's perfect. This is this guy. And many people in this cosmopolitan city were highly educated in Corinth. They liked smart orators. They responded to logic. They responded to well-reasoned arguments. Now, let me... Let me just stop for one second and say this. I think now, more than any time in my lifetime, um, people, people need and are looking for answers. And you know what they want? Sometimes all they're looking for is what looks like a reasonably sane, normal person giving them reasonable answers to questions that have bothered them. And when they have no one like that, when they can't find someone like that, a lot of times they end up dismissing Christianity all together. Now listen, although we need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us, 
There are some people who do it really, really, really well. Apollos was that guy. The problem comes when Christians begin to turn their faith into a reasoned philosophy. No different than other competing philosophies of life being spouted on the street corners of Corinth. You know, and, and, and it seems like maybe, maybe some of the people who are intellectually oriented, some of the people who, you know, in this Greek city who love to hear people orate, is that a word? Or speak on the street corners, they were gravitating to Apollos. This guy, I mean, Paul, he's okay. This guy, this guy, you want to talk, you want the smart professor? Go to this guy. That's the guy you go to, all right? And, 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 and at the heart of our faith, which, which these people maybe began to forget, is that a man was executed for the sins of the whole world. We sang about it. He was buried. And three days later, he walked out of the tomb with visible evidence of torture still intact on his body. Folks, I have to tell you something right now. If you were a Christian, if you adhere to the Christian faith, the miraculous is woven deep into the heart of our faith. But some who followed Apollo tried to downplay that aspect and highlight the wisdom side of the whole equation. There were others who said, uh, I follow Cephas. That's, Cephas is Peter. And uh, he was uh, one of the 12 original Palestinian Jewish apostles of Christ, uh, one who was called specifically to evangelize a Jewish people. And although Peter undeniably understood grace, he was also steeped from the time he was this high in the Old Testament Mosaic law. And he had a, a huge struggle, as we read in the book of Acts, even accepting Gentiles into the church until, remember, you know, he had that vision and the sheet came down and he said, you know, kill and eat. And he goes, no way, you know, those aren't clean. And, and, and God said to him, you know what, I've made them holy. So, you know what, you need to welcome them in. And he ended up, you know, Welcome man. That was a hard thing for him. And I'm not sure if he ever 100% got over this kind of little, just a little uneasy feeling that, you know what, we're kind of going away from the law. And how do I know that? Because in Galatians, remember in Galatians, where, where these men who were, they came into the church in Galatia, in the Galatians churches, and they were saying, listen, grace, we're all for grace. We're with you, yay, Paul. But also, you need to follow the Mosaic law. You need to have grace and the Mosaic law, and you bring them together, and you can be saved. And Peter was kind of going, you know? And Paul stood up in front of everyone. You can read it in the book of Galatians. And he, he to his very face, chastised him. Basically saying, you know, how dare? You were saved by grace. And now you're going to deny it to this group? See, I think Peter was always just, uh, just there's always something there in the back of his mind. You know what? Um, were there legalistic people in Corinth who leaned heavily towards works? You know, they kind of, you know, they heard about Peter. They talked to Peter, and they, you know, they knew, you know, and, and they said, you know what? This is all great, but you know what? We really, you know, there has to be this, this very hard ethic that we, that we, you know, need to follow to be saved. Was that instead of grace? I don't know. Then there was the last group. This is my favorite group. Uh, these people are saying, you know, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm a Cephas. And then you can almost see these people coming up and going, we're with Christ. You know, and, and you're like, okay, so are we. I mean, you know what? We are too. Thanks, you know, so much. Um, uh, you, you listen to them. And I, my hunch 
is that their problem didn't lie so much in saying that they followed Christ, but it was in acting like he belonged to them exclusively. You can't help but think that, you know what, this was a group that was more than a little bit intolerant, more than a little bit self-righteous. And all these factors, listen, all these factors are pushing their own agenda, and they mistakenly thought that, you know what, by lining up behind this favorite leader, you know, we can get everybody else to sooner or later come with us, and everything will be great. Is it any wonder that people can't get along? I mean, these are, these are believers. This is the cream of the crop in Corinth, folks. This is it. This is as good as it gets at that time right then. Do you ever notice how people just can't get along? I mean, period. I mean, I know this is probably not true at your workplace, but I have heard a lot of workplaces, there's sniping that goes on. I mean, you walk in, and the first, within three days, you know who you're supposed to hang out with, who you're not supposed to hang out with, you know, gossip about this one, that one got divorced, and then she's right, you know, that wasn't even divorced. Right away, you heard everything, right? It happens all the time. Snarky comments uh, of neighbors towards other neighbors in the family. How long is it when you put people together before they have identified every character deficiency in another person, in the other family, in the other organization? It happens in churches, too, with church leaders. You walk into a new work environment. You walk into a new class, uh, and in no time, you find out who's who and who's out and who to avoid. And yet Paul knew that this issue of unity and harmony and peace among God's people was so critical. He knew that not only was it very important for them, it was something that was so close to the heart of God. And if they didn't get it, they would never get what he was going to say in the rest of the letter. The rest of the letter was just a waste of time. If they couldn't figure out this thing first, and they would never impact the world if they didn't figure out how to get together. See, folks... God wants the world to know him. God wants the world to know him. Do you know that there are many people on the planet today who don't give God two minutes of their time thinking about him in a day? Not, not two minutes. Jesus, after pouring himself into his disciples, knew that these men... Uh, you know, or the people in Corinth, or the people at the Crossing Church in Livingston, 2,000 years, way, way, way in the future, if they were ever going to be able to go out and make his name known and let people know of the love of God that, and change their culture, that they were going to have to change. They were going to have to be one. They would have to join together. It was a must if the world was going to know him. Just hours before he died, hours, Jesus prayed. Remember the, remember the prayer he prayed in John chapter 17? And he, he wrote this in John 17, verse 20. He said, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, and they may be, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. 
Jesus prayed that they would be one, as the Father and the Son are one. Well, in what sense? In, in, in the Father and the Son, there is a, there's a oneness of will. There's a oneness of desire. There's a oneness of purpose. There's a oneness of love. There's a oneness of sacrifice. These were the characteristics of the oneness that Jesus desired for all of his followers. It is the oneness he desires in us. He said it should look like complete unity. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word oneness, when I hear the phrase complete unity, there's another word that comes to my mind. You know what word comes to my mind? Uniformity. Uniformity. My parents, for many years, uh, lived uh, just a few miles from West, West Point Military Academy up in Highland Falls, New York. And on a Saturday afternoon, every Saturday afternoon, when Army has a home football game, uh, the Corps of Cadets would march on this enormous open field on the grounds. Really, really impressive. Hundreds and hundreds of young cadets marching in exact precision. Everybody right, left, right, left, you know. I'm, you, you, but you know what? You look at them, you can't tell one from the other. I mean, you really can't. Uh, I don't even know how parents would be able, hey, it's Johnny, or maybe it's not. I mean, I don't know how they could ever e even tell. They all have their hair cut the same way. They all look the same way. They're all wearing the same uniform. The church at Corinth, as we will see more, but I just want to mention briefly uh, this morning, um, they had a wild mixture of people. They had poor and well-to-do, even rich. They had men and women mixing in the same company. They had slaves and free. Now, just imagine the differences in just those categories alone. You, you, you couldn't get them to march together. I mean, that would be like herding cats. There's no way you're ever going to do it. Now, one of the things that Marisol Rodriguez, who heads up our Renew Life Center in Patterson, has taught me is that the differences between the rich and the poor is not just that some have money and others don't. Uh, there are differences in mindset. There are differences in how people look at the world. You know what? Uh, we minister in Guatemala cross-culturally. Folks, i got to tell you something right now. We minister cross-culturally from Livingston to Patterson, New Jersey. It is a cross-cultural experience. You ever wonder why a poor mom who comes into a hundred bucks, you know, she's got, she's got a hundred bucks, why she might spend it on an overpriced pair of sneakers for her son instead of saving it to pay for what we would, everybody here would consider essentials. I mean, besides the fact that like any mother, she wants to give her kids nice things because she sees other kids getting nice things because today she has it and tomorrow maybe she won't. See, that's why. The poor lived and still live from day to day. Let's get through today, and if we see tomorrow, then we'll worry about that. You know, I, I, if I have 100 bucks, I better spend it fast because maybe a relative's going to hear about it, and they're going to go, you know what? I have no money to get on the bus, and, and you know what? And, and then the next row, and, then, and, and she'll kind of feel obliged to give it over. So you might as well spend it even if it's on something like that. See, it's a different mindset. There's a cultural difference. There's a worldview. There's, there's a difference in how people look at the world. A slave in the ancient world was property, totally at the mercy of the owner. 
They had no latitude to make direction in their life or make decisions that would, that would change their lives. A slave's not going to go, well, you know what, Corinth is kind of nice, but I heard Ephesus has a really nice beach, and we're going to go there, and we're going to, you know, I heard the schools are good, and now let's go to the school. They're not doing that. They're not making decisions like that like the rich could make. A free man or woman had enormous latitude in their life. A slave, none. Men and women? I was once, I'll never forget, I was once challenged by a speaker in class to imagine being a woman for a day. It was a woman speaker. And uh, she took our class of all men, about 30 of us, through a day as a woman. And by the time she was done, I remember saying, good luck with that, because I don't want, I don't want any, I almost felt like the old-time rabbis who would pray in their daily prayers, I thank you, God, that I was not born a woman, which they used to do. I, I almost felt like praying that prayer when she was done. And folks, add to all the differences that are there, the natural inner bent towards seeing the world through exclusively our own eyes, and first and foremost, trying to make sure that everybody else bends to us. Not we adjust to the world, but that the world adjusts to us. But you know what? God has called us to something else. In another place... To another church, Paul wrote this, Romans 12. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. See, Paul knew what was going on. He got it. Paul is saying that it's not only the responsibility but it is the privilege of the Christian to share in the joys and the sorrows of others, especially others in another boundary, in another field, with a different worldview. So how in the world do you get these dissimilar groups together? You know, do you dress them all the same, cut their hair, there, line them up, force them to learn to dance together? How do you get people of such different backgrounds and tastes and experiences and life situations to do anything together? Here it is, folks. Uh, you know what? It's, it's so simple. I, you know, I don't think a PhD in culture could ever say it more simply. And this is what the Scripture says. How do you get them together? Get the gospel in them. Let them experience the cross of Jesus Christ. Tell them, listen, this is the message you tell them. Tell them that God thought so much about them and was so unwilling to let them drift off into a meaningless dead future that he sent his own son to save them from the sins that separated he from they. You know, on Christmas morning, the Bible says that God put on flesh John chapter 1 and verse 1 says this, that which was from the beginning, talking about Jesus, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. God took on flesh, the Bible says, and became one of us. And folks, I got to tell you, the differences between God and man, if, if there is ever a chasm so wide that you can't imagine it, 
It's not me from you. It's not them from us. It's God from man. Perfect, holy God from sinful, rebellious man. That's the biggest chasm. And yet the Bible says this, for we do not have a high priest who was unable, key word here, who was unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. It would have been enough for me if they said, you know, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with us. I can sympathize with a lot of people. No, he said empathize. He understands what we go through because he went through it, and yet without sin. He understands the problems and the pressures of life. He understands the relationship splits and why it happened and who's got the 80% fault and who's got the 20% fault or anything in between. He understands that perfectly, even if we don't. How do you get people who on the surface have so many more differences and similarities moving in the same direction? Folks, you bring them to the cross. Tell them about the cross. Don't tell them about how much you value them. Tell them about how much God values them. See, that's good theology. That will make a difference. Yesterday, at our Trunk or Treat event, I caught up with uh, two folks who I, I hadn't seen in a while. Really, really great couple. Always, always appreciated them. And they pointed out three or four kids that they had brought into their home as foster kids. Can you imagine? They, I think there was five altogether, and I think four of them are foster kids. And, and as one of them is this cute little, this boy ran by, uh, you know, this, this mom called out to him and stopped him dead in his tracks and said to him, who loves you more than anyone in the world? And this little boy who was from a home where the mother's boyfriend continually abused him, he looked up and he says, God, God loves me more than anybody in the world. Folks, the crossing is a very diverse community. Um, some would say that that's a problem because it presents more barriers. I think it is the greatest blessing that God has ever given to us as a church. People of all races and diverse backgrounds, as far as I know, I was thinking about it uh, yesterday, we have people who were born and raised for, a, for a, a significant portion in their life in six of the seven continents on the planet. Any Aussies here? Australia, I just, see, that's the, the one I didn't think, so. Anyway, but can you imagine? On, on six of the seven continents on the planet, we have a, if you go out, and when you go out, you will hear a wonderful cacophony of accents in the lobby after the service today. I love it. Now listen, I can't experience what you've experienced, but I can hold your hand and say, isn't it great? Isn't it great that we're in the same family? Isn't it great that we have the same father? Isn't it great that we are going to spend eternity together? Isn't it amazing that God loved you and me so much that he didn't even withhold his own son from you or I? Isn't that great? Folks, that is not some well-crafted argument, I got to tell you. Those are not words of human wisdom. It is truth, as I like to say, on the bottom shelf. 
And if we try and come together, if we try to be unified under any other banner but that of the cross of Jesus Christ, we have, as Paul said, emptied the cross of his power. The cross of Jesus tells me that I am loved and valued beyond anything I could have ever hoped or imagined. And we let our, when we let our differences come between us, you know what that's an indication of? It's an indication that we have forgotten the cross, that we have emptied the cross of its meaning, and we're just like everybody else. Paul is saying that allowing the gospel to, be, gospel to become attached to a human personality Allowing it to uh, become divided into subgroups of theological followings or anything else. Allowing the gospel to center in some person, whether it's Paul or Cephas or Apollos, or in some weird way Christ, is to remove the cross from the center of the gospel. Forgetting the cross, Paul says, means the church and the individual will slowly drift into trouble. And Paul doesn't want to see the cross become emptied of his power in this church. God desires for us to be one. For our sake, for the sake of the world, for the glory of God. So he comes to us and he sits beside us and he grabs our hand and he says, Don't empty my cross of its power to unite. Don't empty my cross from what it is supposed to accomplish the salvation of men and women who now come together as brothers and sisters and glory in what I have done for you. God help us. God help us, this church, to be one, to, to magnify the name of Christ by pointing those who come to us, not to a great worship team or a cool cafe, or a wonderful children's program, but pointing them to the cross of Jesus Christ. See, that's what brings men and women together.